Welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and I am joined by my old friends, Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. Heidi, Tim, how's it going? Welcome back to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. We are here to talk about The Odyssey. Books 11 and 12. This is our uh, last... Well, it's not our last... I was going to say it's our last section of two books. It's just our last section of two books for the next couple of weeks. We'll do a four-book section for next week. So, you know, get reading as soon as you're done listening to this episode, I guess. If you want to join the conversation, you can do so online. Social media is a good place. You can join the Close Reads Facebook group. If you have not done that, just search Close Reads Podcast Discussion Group in Facebook search bar and it should pop up. Click Request to Join and we will approve you post-haste. You can, of course, also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Close Reads Pods. You can sign up for the Close Reads newsletter at closereads.substack.com or you can email us at closereadspodcasts at gmail.com. Like I said, we are here to discuss... The Odyssey, but we also, a little inside baseball here, we also are going to be recording a bonus episode today after this for those of you who are Patreon supporters. Uh, we're going to be doing our monthly short story recording immediately after this. So make sure you're signed up for that. We're going to be talking about a story by Willa Cather. We've also posted um, stories by Hemingway and Agatha Christie in the last couple months. So um, if you are a Close Reads Patreon supporter, you can, you can go listen to those now. And if you're not, then you know, consider doing so. It supports the show, helps us do more episodes, helps us pay Tim and Heidi and our editor, Logan. Shout out to Logan, by the way. Check that out. You can go over to patreon.com slash close read to learn more about that. But let's get down to business. Now that we're done with the business, let's get down to business. <laughs> Books 11 and 12 of the Odyssey. We descend into hell. <laughs> and yeah. and mm-hmm. then we uh, wind up out on the open sea. There's a lot we could talk about here, um, but I wanted to ask you a question about virtue. Because last week, we talked about the question of Odysseus's virtue. Um, we, not, not, we weren't questioning whether he is virtuous per se, but we were talking about you know what were some of the things that the ancient Greeks understood to be virtues, and how might those be different than you know, what, say, the contemporary Christian virtues might be, or even the sort of Judeo-Christian tradition might suggest they are. And I was wondering if in these books here, we learn anything more about that. Because there were a couple of points when I circled something and I wrote, you know, in the margins, virtue, question mark, ancient virtue, question mark, something like that. So Tim, I was wondering if you could touch on this first. And we'll dive into some of the specifics of these two books. But I thought, you know, this has become something of a through line through these first uh, several episodes of the Odyssey, so why not continue on with that as an as an entryway into this episode? So, what do you and think about that, Tim? One of our All Star listeners, Esther Bills, raised it on the Facebook group. She had a really great question. So, like the Close Reads Facebook page is always rife with conversation. Esther posted um, a question about this very subject. Oh, it, can I start? Can we like? I'm going to give an answer to a slightly different question, Dave. I would expect nothing less of you. <laughs> yeah, right. Like I'm a politician. I don't answer the question that's been asked me. Hey, we For know me. how you came up in your, in your adult careers. <laughs> <laughs> well, careers. Thank you for making that plural. <laughs> the thing that I noticed the most about books, book 11 especially, was less about the virtue the, the virtue differences and more about the kind of cosmological differences 
Hmm. Because here we have our main hero, Odysseus, descend into hell. And he sees, in essence, what is kind of like the hall of fame of ancient Greece. He has, I mean, he meets everybody. Uh, He doesn't just meet, you know, his mother, but he meets Agamemnon and he meets Mm -hmm. Achilles. He relates the story of, you know, Achilles' son to him. Even Ajax, who they don't don't like each other. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I think about, okay, so to, to kind of frame this question, this descent into hell might sound for those who are unfamiliar with the classical tradition, like what a peculiar storytelling decision, Homer. Why did you put Odysseus down in hell? But this is a trope that existed before the Odyssey and will be embellished upon after the Odyssey. So before the Odyssey, um, there's a there's a classic Babylonian myth, uh, myth slash story called the Epic of Gilgamesh, mm-hmm. and one of the oldest like, books that we have a copy of, clay tablets that were discovered actually relatively recent, like I think within the last 150 years, and it tells the story of Gilgamesh, and Gilgamesh is haunted by this worry about what's going to happen to him when he dies. Is there anything like salvation for mortals? And he ends up descending into hell in pursuit of that question. So now the Odyssey, the pursuit is, it's a little bit different. So it's not that Homer and Odysseus are not probing the question of, is there an afterlife directly, or excuse me, is there kind of immortality directly? They're not asking that question. It's more a question of, I hate to say it again, it's more of a tactical question of, how do I get home? Hmm. What do I do when I get there? That's the main question that it seems to me, correct me if you guys see it differently, that Odysseus is pursuing. Now, after the Odyssey, um, the trope of the main hero descending into hell will be uh, embellished in the Aeneid by Virgil. And then about a thousand years later, most famously by uh, Dante, Dante in the Divine Comedy, which begins with a descent into hell. So I just, I think it's really fascinating that this is kind of like, this is probably the centerpiece story of that trope of the main hero descending into hell. And I think what's really interesting is Dante coming from the Christian tradition is the story of the descent to hell is the story of the main character in search of virtue and in search of immortality. And I think by contrast, Odysseus is not on that same search. I don't think he's looking for virtue. I don't think he's looking for immortality. I think he's looking for a way to get home, to rightly order that home, and to pronounce justice on um, the people who have invaded his home. And that, I think, might be the Greek answer to the quest for virtue. Hmm. So actually, I did answer the question in a very (laughs) roundabout fashion. Well done. Yeah. So it's interesting that you say that because early in 11, and Heidi, I'll let you jump in a, in a second here. I just want to reflect on something he's saying there. Um, line Around line 105, 
the uh, the prophet. What's the prophet's name in the underworld again? Um, Teresius. Teresius. Yeah, he says. I think Poseidon will not cease to feel incensed because you blinded his dear son. And then this line, you have to suffer, but you can get home if you control your urges and your men. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I was thinking about is how you're right. There is the sense that for him, it's, you know, it is tactical. The, the mission to the underworld is sort of, is sort of tactical and every, and, and everyone's constantly giving him advice on how to go about accomplishing his ultimate mission, his ultimate goal, giving him it, even tactical advice, right? But all that tactical advice seems to be wrapped up in these, in questions that are questions related to virtue, though. Even if his goals are not about virtue, they seemed the advice people are giving him are virtue adjacent anyway, such as if you control your urges <laughs> right. and your men, you know, if you, if you have a certain degree of virtue in you, then your ultimate goal will be found. And so everywhere he looked, people are telling him, you can't follow your urges. You can't, you can't give in to temptation. You have to be strong enough to avoid the things that are, you know, sort of your innermost, what seem like in the moment anyway, your innermost desires. You have to be able to rule yourself in order to ultimately fulfill the mission that you have before you. And so the two seem pretty intertwined, don't they? Even mm-hmm. to the ancient, even in this ancient tale. Even yeah. if not in Odysseus's mind to the storyteller and the other characters, it seems like at least the people who are giving him advice, the two things are intertwined. Virtue and then the sort of ultimate mission. And self-control is one of the fruits of the spirit. There's an obvious and clear compatibility between that aspect of the Greek vision of virtues and the Christian vision of the virtues. I think it's really interesting um, that I, I would suspect that many of the virtues, if we just kind of like could make a list of the Greek, of the Homeric Greek vision of the virtues and the Christian vision of the virtues, I bet there would be a, a large number of, there would be indeed overlap, self-control being one of them. I think what's most, what's interesting is the virtues are always hierarchical. They're not just... Um, in the Greek, in the ancient world? I think, yeah, in the ancient world and in the, in, in the Christian vision of things. Um, I don't think that, how do I say this? Rahab, for example, lies. She dishonest, she's dishonest when the people of Jericho are attempting to find out um, the spies from Israel. And later, the Christian Bible praises her for that, for what she does. So she breaks a virtue, uh, the virtue of honesty, in order to exercise a higher virtue, let's say, honoring God. Or maybe you could even say the preservation of life. Hmm. So I think there's, there's every culture that has kind of like a robust sense of let's use our term of the virtues or of good moral action behavior. Those clusters don't just hang equally upon the tree, but there's a star at the top of that tree typically. And it's kind of like a master virtue or for the Christians, you would say like there are three master virtues and it'd be faith, hope, and love. And the other virtues kind of like fall underneath those three master virtues. Hmm. Uh, 
In which Close Reads turns into a podcast on virtue ethics. That's what this is. <laughs> Heidi, what, what do you have to say about all this? I've been waiting patiently. <laughs> I'm, I'm so interested. I love this. I think to go along with what both of you have said, that this, this center portion, this is the chronological, or not the chronological center, but the... It's not the chrono. The, the chronology is all strange in this book, but this oh, in is terms the of the number center, of books. like the in terms of no, not yes, I guess so. The length in terms of the length of the Odyssey, these two books are right in the middle, and that's always mm-hmm. important. Mm-hmm. And that's when Aeneas goes into the underworld, also yeah. in the Aeneid. And so I'm in this unique position right now, in which I'm reading the Odyssey for close reads. I'm teaching the Iliad to high schoolers. Um, for the school year. And then I'm also reading the Aeneid for the apprenticeship. So I'm reading all three <laughs> of the big epics at the same time. So I have a lot of opportunity to compare. To get confused. Um, yeah. Well, to, to tie threads together. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm thinking as you guys are talking that for Odysseus, I think he does display great virtue. I agree with Tim that there's a tactical choice here that he's making. He's not on a journey of the soul like Dante is, to your point, Tim. Um, But his virtue is that even though Odysseus, as we've been talking about over these weeks, is more than a man in many ways, um, he, he does continually, even in this portion, reject the immortality that is offered to him by the deathless gods for the sake of going home. He's continually saying, no, I know that I may have kind of these manly Greek heroic virtues more than a man. He, he accepts that. He owns that. He's, he's not like, oh no, I'm just a guy. Like He knows that he is in many ways more than the regular man. But he keeps rejecting the destiny of, of the demigod in order to go home for Penelope, for Ithaca, for Telemachus, for this like unified life of an earthly man. And, and if you look at the other epics, say Gilgamesh fails, he just flat out fails to win immortality. Achilles actually rejects home. He rejects being a regular guy. He knows he has to choose. He has two fates. He's only one in mythology, whoever gets to choose between two fates. And he rejects being an ordinary man and he chooses glory. And Aeneas actually loses his home and he must, throughout the entire Aeneid, sublimate any personal desires in order to do his duty. He doesn't want, we never know what Aeneas wants. Uh, He just has to do what the gods tell him to do. But Odysseus, Odysseus, however, I think, in these two center books and for the rest of the epic, he comes the closest to uh, fulfilling the Christian ideal of any kind of pre-Christian mythology or epic that's written in the future because he unifies his glory and his home and he rejects any attempt to overreach himself because of his great love for his family. So I think that's what we see here in these, these center books. Heidi. Yes. I had a conversation with our mutual friend, Rudy Reidelhuber, when I was driving home from Santa Fe. And he, oh man, I, I almost... Shout out to Rudy. Yeah. I, and it's going to be a double shout out because he has this kind of vision of the Odyssey as kind of, 
I, I don't want to misrepresent Rudy because it's such a sophisticated, thoughtful view. I, I, I was like, man, maybe maybe David could let us bring Rudy on to do a, a Patreon episode. But it's exactly what you said, Heidi. There's this kind of sense that um, the bridegroom, who for Christians is Christ, um, and for the Greeks is Odysseus, the bridegroom is estranged from his home. And then he, there will be a return, and that return will bring both a unity with the beloved and justice for his enemies. Anyway, Rudy was just like really superb on this. So all that to say, yeah, absolutely, Heidi. This is we're we're going to start to see, especially when Odysseus returns home after Book Twelve, when he kind of like turns his ships toward home. Um, we're going to start to see the sort of the allegorical aspects of the Odyssey really start to kind of, for me, match up with this sense of God returning to be with his beloved. And I think the, the similarities in those two stories is remarkable. I, I feel like I have been playing up the dissimilarities between the Greek, the Homeric Greek vision of the virtues and the Christian vision of the virtues, because I am keen to maybe to help readers not paste a Christian virtue onto, um, onto Homer, because it is so tempting to do that. It's so tempting to do that with every sort of like, ancient piece of literature. Um, and I am just keen to kind of like highlight the differences and maybe I'm over, maybe I'm highlighting the differences a little bit too much. You guys should tell me. No, I think what, what we're trying to say, and I, again, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I'll just say what I'm trying to say uh, is that is, is this, that it's, we cannot come in and use our faith as some kind of, um, literary criticism. Um, but what I love about the Odyssey is that it prefigures exactly what you're saying. In every way, it is an allegory of the gospel, the faithful wife waiting at home for to be to be rescued by the king who is going to return and slay the suitors, the dangers that are besetting them and restore the kingdom. And and it's a remarkable thing that that was written before our faith, before Jesus came. And, and that speaks, I think, to these echoes of eternity that have gone throughout human history. And, and, and that, I think, is the proper way to see, or a proper way to see Odysseus as this great and mighty king who is a, a a precursor to Christ. When Christ comes, he fulfills then in truth these threads that are thrown out in pagan literature before him. Um, and they don't even mean to be prophetic. They're not trying to. They just do. They just are because those things, eternity is written in our hearts, as scripture tells us. And so whenever we write a great story, it's going to echo the story of the world, which is creation groaning to be saved. You can probably hear, um, I'm speaking to to David and maybe our listeners, 
you can probably hear in what Heidi is saying and what I'm saying, there's like, there's a couple of different ways that you can think about um, how one's Christian faith ought to influence one's reading of a book. And I, and I am with Heidi. I think it's part of the reason we find ourselves agreeing so often on the show is because I think I belong to the same school as you, Heidi. And I'm going to say we kind of come from the C.S. Lewis school. So yes, you guys know, um, experiment and criticism. Basically, I'm going to, I'm going to give a very short, hopeful, hopefully accurate articulation of what Lewis argues in that book. Basically, Lewis, he argues a lot in that book. (laughs) There is, there is. But I, I think he tries to highlight two main kind of ways of reading a book. Okay. One of them, I think, is the way that Heidi and I think David and I would all recommend, which is you let the book speak for itself. It kind of creates its own world and it creates within that world rules for the characters and a reality that they have to live by. Now, those worlds are very often closely tied. They can never be too far distant from the rules of our actual world, or they just don't make sense to the reader. So they have to kind of be patterned in some way after the rules of the actual world. Like there's things like gravity. Um, There's another way of reading, which would say, Yes, those rules of the of like our world are so powerful and so patterned that you can actually sort of form a like an uber criticism or a meta criticism. And I think the biggest proponents of that, I'll mention two of them. Um, one of them is oh, help me for a second, you guys. Um, the hero with a thousand faces. What's wrong oh. with? Him? Um, no, I want to look at, hold on. I'm going to look it up. Hopefully no, Campbell, Joseph Campbell. I don't know. I Joseph said Campbell. in my head, I was saying Campbell, but i said Conrad. <laughs> yes. Joseph Campbell. Guys. Joseph Campbell. Yeah. So for Joseph Campbell, there's sort of a, um, there's an Uber myth and all of the like particular myths sort of like conform in one way or another to that kind of uber Arch- myth the archetypal hero and so forth the archetypal hero exactly so i'm gonna i'm gonna put um someone who i really respect i'm gonna put jordan peterson in that group so jordan peterson has kind of become really popular in a lot of ways and i think that he would probably i think he, I, I think he's very very sophisticated in the way that he reads um but i think that he does think that there's something like kind of archetypal heroes and archetypal journeys. And then in some ways I do too. But I think when reading a piece of literature, if you take those kind of preformed patterns and you impress and you take the pattern and you sort of force it onto the cookie dough of the story, then what do you know? You're going to get the same pattern over and over. And I think what I like about C.S. Lewis is it really does dignify the storyteller and the story and the characters and the culture that we're reading about in literature. And it kind of, and it gives them their own voice. It gives them their own voice. And I, 
that's that's where I think um, Lewis is trying to articulate an experiment in criticism. That there are these two broad camps. Both of them have great merit. I do belong, and I think that we belong. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, you guys, in the kind of former category, which is the books. The books create their own patterns. They create their own dynamics. They create their own rules, and we are yeah, here. Yeah, they have their own language. Yeah, and we are here to understand them, not to tell them what they actually meant. Yep, agreed. Well, and the problem with like with the archetypal criticism um, is that there it tend it tends to not know where the myth even came from, right? Like Joseph Campbell just says with In Here with Thousand Faces that uh, all stories kind of are trying to tell this one story, but but that one story is created by the story. It, it's circular reasoning. And so what Christians say is we know the story they're trying to tell. There is a fundamental story. There is a overarching story that all stories are going to try to reach towards that Echoes of Eternity idea. Um and it succeeds or fails insofar as it as it attempts in truth to get there. And I would, the Odyssey absolutely attempts to get there. Hmm. Well, we could just do a deep dive on uh, literary theory if we want, uh, <laughs> or we could talk about the Odyssey. <laughs> There's a couple. So we've got what we have left is we've got Clytemnestra, right? The mm-hmm maybe the real most real villain of the whole story. We've mm-hmm. got, um, so he meets Agamemnon and then he comes back up. Then he goes, um, they go back up to Circe and she tells him about the sirens and Scylla and Charybdis and his, and his men all get destroyed in one fell swoop. Um, and, and I think that there is this, I mean, I, it's interesting that you brought you, the, the, con, the concept of analogy has come up um, because I think that these books maybe it's because they're so crucial that because they're in the middle of the story and thus have been told and retold much like the Cyclops story over and over again, they, they tend to start to take on the, the sort of, maybe it's by reputation, the sort of tone of analogy, you know, like Mm. if you, the sirens, for example, right. And, And, somebody posted the um posted a picture of big dan on the facebook group you know the, the john goodman character from a brother where art thou yeah and a brother where art thou is basically just a it's basically just a retelling of the odyssey and they've been you know they've made no bones about that um they haven't pretended that it's not and so some you know sometimes you look at something like skill and charybdis or the sirens and what stands out the most is the sort of you know the sort of um uh, Pilgrim's progressness of it all, <laughs> like you know, if you don't pay attention to your what you what you hear and what you see, then you're going to be destroyed by the sirens, right? Um, do in your experience, then, do you find that students tend to gravitate towards that sort of a reading and then sort of shut down? How do you? You're teaching. You've taught this book. You're teaching it now. Well, no, you're teaching the Iliad now, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Um, but when you've taught this, do you find that that sort of reading? naturally instinctively sort of happens that that's modern students have sort of been conditioned to that and it sort of makes them think you know sort of makes it less meaningful in a sense because right. it sort of becomes about following a rule or a lesson or something like that that you get out of it yes they see in it just a simplistic fable about obedience um and 
to be honest, yes. And to be honest, in this part of the story, there's there's a certain validity to that. There's, I mean, Tiresias and Circe have given Odysseus a set of instructions. If this is going to happen to you, and this is how you are to respond to it. And yeah, and don't be a dummy. That's basically exactly, exactly. And in some ways, he follows it to the letter of the law, and in some ways, kind of strangely, he completely ignores the warnings. And so, like for example, putting on his best armor, right? When they're passing skill and exactly it, or even listening to the sirens, uh, and certainly landing on the island uh, where the. where the cattle are. And so, right. uh, and, and there is a kind of a sense in which any thoughtful reader is going to encounter particularly the cattle part of the story and wonder exactly what we talked about last week. Is Odysseus spinning this tale in telling it to Arete and Alcinous in, in, in the banqueting hall? And there's some evidence, even in the text, that he's not telling the whole truth about that. So, um, and, and oh. this... One of my favorite bits is when all of a sudden he's like, no, 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 I know this because Clytemnestra told me, I mean, Calypso told me and Hermes told her. He has that little aside. And I imagine everybody who's watching him looking at him like, how do you know this? How do you know that? (laughs) No, no, no. Trust me. I was told. Yep. I told that. The gods told me. Which in some ways, I look at that as like a, a writer and... I think Homer's a genius because he's thinking to himself, how would Odysseus know this? I have to explain to his audience in some way how Odysseus knows something that he couldn't possibly know. So, or he's just making it. So it, yeah. So there's, there's a lot of question marks here. And so that, that question of, uh, can this part of the Odyssey be reduced to a fable? It can, but it probably shouldn't. You know, there is a do this and 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 don't do that. And Odysseus sometimes obeys and sometimes doesn't. But I think if you're going to miss a lot, particularly about the character of our hero, if you just look at it as this kind of series of fables and obedience to the gods. Tim, do your students like you taught college most recently? Did did you find that college students tend to look at the story, for example, of the sirens that way? Um, or do they just not read it? <laughs> Say now, they do. I, I didn't find them doing that. Um, I mean, most of them were familiar with the phrase, you know, or, or sort of like the... Um, the concept the of a siren. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I didn't, I didn't find... I, 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 Gutenberg was so good at, still is so good at preparing students to read well that I think that they didn't, they would not read the Odyssey until their junior or senior year. And at that point they were so well equipped to read that they, they typically did not do that. My younger students, I don't remember that happening, but I would think that my, when I taught high school, they would be more inclined to do that. But, but then again, I, I don't remember anybody kind of like playing up the sirens as this moral fable and waiting. <laughs> Why do you think that that the Sirens chapter we get the Sirens, Skilla and Charybdis, and the what's the island, the Cow Island, Helios? Yeah, yeah. we th- we get all that jammed into one book, which I find interesting. And right in the middle of the book, as Heidi mentioned earlier, it's book twelve in a in a in an epic poem that has twenty four books, and in other earlier books, even in even in Odysseus's little story here, he's stretched out these tales a little bit. So why do you guys think those three stories, those three trials or whatever, um, get jammed into this middle book 
uh, what, what does that mean for the structure of the book, but also, you know, thematically? And uh, is it just that Odysseus was getting tired of telling his story? So he just kind of was like, ah, time to wrap it up. I got to get on the road. Tim, what do you <laughs> think about that? I think it, it has the effect upon us of almost creating exhaustion. Like it's, it's hard. Yeah. Cause it's so bang, 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 back, back oh, to back. Oh man. It's so action packed. It's so it, just the scene of trying to sail between the Scylla and Charybdis. And then they make it, they are starving to death. They violate the sun gods. Um, whatever Tiresias's order about not, not eat the cattle. They're blown back out to sea. The ship is destroyed. Some of the men again are eaten by Scylla and Charybdis. It's just one thing after the other. And I think it's really hard to convey to a reader what exhaustion feels like. Like it's, you can convey to a reader what, um, a battle scene feels like, you know, like a really capable writer and Homer in the Iliad is there's none more capable can make you feel like you're there, but exhaustion is different because exhaustion is sort of a depletion of resources, not an activity. But so I, I think, I wonder if all of this action is packed so densely in to really convey how tired how exhausted and depleted our hero is. Hmm. Yeah, I I think that that comes through for sure in these books. Um, and we also have to um, feel the weight of Odysseus's great sufferings before this is the, I think this is, Another another way of saying what you just said, Tim, that this is like the bottleneck of the story. This is the the there's so much pressure on Odysseus in the story that he's telling because we're always remembering he's telling a story in order to get the sympathy and help for this last, last leg of his journey. He's one one leg away from home, and everything depends on enlisting the sympathy of Alcinous and Arete right now. And so he, and you can feel how careful this to your point you made earlier too, David, like you can feel how carefully he's telling this story. Um, and, and then the story itself is full of these impossible trials and this incredible suffering. Um, and, and Odysseus is always focusing on that, how much he has lost, um, and it doesn't feel, you know, people read this and I, I, people read this, um, section of the Odyssey books nine through 12. This is what people read in say college their you know, overview of world literature class. They read the Odyssey books nine through 12 and they think of it as this great adventure story, but that's not how Odysseus is telling it. Odysseus is telling it as a record of his manifestly horrendous sufferings and all he wants is their help to get home. Hmm. Heidi, that's such a great point. I, I lost, I, you reminded me like that this is not a story told in a vacuum around the fire to strangers. This is a story told with intent that mm-hmm. Odysseus is trying to solicit the help of people who can actually get him back on the road, on the sea. He's trying to draw empathy. 
Yeah. Yes. Well, and you, I mean, just how tactically, I mean, Tim keeps using that word, that word and, and actually Homer uses that word. Odysseus, the great tactician, even, even something as simple as he's telling the story of his visit to the underworld in book 11, and he begins with uh, Tiresias. And then, because that sort of part of the story has to be told, and then he goes straight to his mother and a list of great noble women. And who is he telling the story to? He has been told by Nausicaa to get the sympathy of her mother. That's his first goal. You get my mom on your side and everything will be fine. So he tells this story by, here's Tiresias, I got to get the the prophecy in there. And then I'm going to tell of all these great and noble women, beloved by the gods, who gave birth to heroes and who were strong and mighty. And that's the, the that's what he leads with in the presence of this strong, mighty, great, noble lady whose sympathy he's trying to enlist. Hmm. There, there's this uh, great point. I was thinking a lot of while reading this time. This is this is related to what you're saying, but it might take me a minute to get back around there, or we can move on. I guess um, I was noticing reading book. 12 in particular, but I think he does it through the whole of his little retelling of his journeys here to, to, um, um, my, I'm bad, doing bad with names today. Um, the Phaikians, mm-hmm. um, there's this sort of bittersweet sense of like nostalgia and longing and things like that in the, in the story. You, for example, in book 12, there's that bit where he says that sweet sleep melted from my eyes. I rushed back to the ship beside the shore. And when I was close, the meaty smell of cooking enfolded me. Um, I groaned, and then he talks to the gods. And I was thinking about how there's this sort of constant dichotomy being brought up, or this contrast between I, what I would, for lack of a better word, I would call the you know pleasures, sweet the sweet sleep of uh, sweet sleep, which is a phrase that's used he uses over and over and over again, or at least in her translation, Emily Wilson does. And I actually like that she repeats that. And then there's that sort of concept of the meaty smell of cooking and these, mm-hmm. you know, these longings, uh, the concept of, of pleasure versus that book 11 idea of controlling urges. And he, as he's telling the story, seems to be, I'm not going to say he's doing, I wouldn't say he's necessarily doing it on purpose, although maybe he is, but it seems that under the surface, the subtext of his story is the, 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 the tribulation that is, rejecting pleasure and controlling urges and the relationship between that and getting home and then getting home, fulfilling that ultimate mission or whatever, as Tim put it earlier, that only happens through rejecting pleasure and controlling urges. And the, and even if that's not something that he is, I, I've been debating with myself whether he's doing that on purpose, I guess. And that's part of his, his seeking of empathy because he brings it up a lot. There, it, this seems like a pretty consistent contrast over the last several books. So is he sort of dropping that in there to make himself appear more godlike, you know, to draw empathy from the Phaikians and then thus get their help? Or is it truly subtext? That's just part of, you know, there is that this, it's, it's just sort of something that's, you know, he's thinking back about all the things that he didn't do or um, even when he's, you know, he falls asleep and there is this sort of like, sense that that sleep is he never gets quite enough of it if that makes sense you Mm -hmm. know as he's as he's journeying i mean it makes things seem more difficult and makes it more of a trial does it make sense what i'm saying yes it does and i think it's a really interesting point because both times 
now, now he's been telling this story since book nine and both times that he falls asleep in the story during the day, yeah, like takes a nap, his men betray his direct instructions and bring doom upon them. And, and so in some sense you have Odysseus's humanity, his need for sleep is betraying his heroic nature. Right? Because mm-hmm. he slept, then he wasn't watchful, and then his men kind of run ran amok, and he's the one who keeps them in line. <laughs> so in a sense, um, that, that in and of itself could be, you know, sort of um, the Vikings could look kindly at him because, you know, he's like, I'm just a man. I can't, right. you know, I need some help. Right. Um, and so there's, so then it's kind of like that sense of his humanity betrays him and but oh it's so endearing the guy just needed some sleep you know what's a guy to do who's been watching over his men who are about to ruin everything in every second which of course is what his men say to him you haven't let us sleep (laughs) (laughs) exactly and then but then on the other side you're right about the food um food's such a big deal in the epics how people eat food what kind of food they eat how they cook it how they prepare it those cows for a week and that scene is so eerie, right? Like the, the cows come alive moving. even when they're yeah. being cooked and they're moving and they're like clawing and creeping and climbing at him because uh, it's magic food. And that's bad because humans just need human food. And that's a huge theme of the Odyssey that, that you know, I keep thinking of, say, um, in, in the liturgy when, when we say the holy things are for the holy. There's, there's this great sense in the epics of that there's there's things that are for the gods and that there's things are that are for men and when men try to have the things of the gods they must then be put back in their place and that's why i find odysseus's choice to listen to the sirens so fascinating i keep coming back to that whenever i read this why did he choose that because in every other case he chooses the the the, the earthly things his home his family food that's cooked properly you know that he doesn't it, he doesn't overreach himself except in that case. And that is so fascinating to me. I can't explain that. Is it, Heidi, is it kind of like Odysseus is this sort of border figure between divine and human. And yes, he chooses the human because he knows that it's right, but he still has this sort of like almost like a demigod ability to hear this incredible divine music and he's the only one and he has to bind himself to wood. He has to like bind himself to his like earthly nature in order to be able to hear it, but still he gets to hear it in the way that his men can't, or if they did, they'd all be dead. Right. It's true. And he gets to go down to the underworld and come back alive. He's the only one twice dead. And Circe says that to him. He's the one that is chosen by two goddesses to unite with the divine nature in this physical and metaphorical sense. And yet he continually says, I'm just, I just want to go home. And that's why I don't like the Tennyson poem, the Ulysses poem. Everybody loves that poem. I don't like it because it is, I don't think it's consistent with Odysseus's true nature, which is, I just want to go home. I don't know the Tennyson poem well enough to um, like it or dislike it, Heidi, what do you, what are you thinking about about that poem that you dislike? Because he leaves Penelope, calls her this 
an aged wife. He leaves her because he just wants to go out and go on adventures. He leaves Telemachus. He talks about how boring it is in life in Ithaca and, and I have to go out and, you know, drink life to the lees and I have become a name and I'm, I'm going to gather my men together and we're going to go out again. And I don't, I don't think that's Odysseus. I don't think that's what we see in the Odyssey. Especially the second um, half of the Odyssey. And I think is what David just mentioned about kind of these earthly things, these earthy concrete things of the world that keep meant being mentioned over and over again in this grand epic by Odysseus himself as being kind of the things that tie him to home. And he's always describing Rocky, Rocky Ithaca and um, he's, he wants to get home and he keeps talking about the food he wants to eat at home, right? I want to go home and I want to, to eat this food in my own dining hall with my wife and my son. And I want to hear the music of my bard. And I, there's just this, he has never forgotten the goodness of just being an ordinary man, but he's constantly being, being tempted by these false homecomings to go beyond his ordinary humanity and, and live in that borderland that you're talking about. And I see him as just saying, no, that's not what I want, except with the sirens. Hmm. Wait, what do you mean? Except like for the he, sirens. Because he chooses to listen to their music, even knowing that it will ruin him. And he even talks about that later. He never liked music again after he heard the song of the sirens. But that's kind of the moment that he that he he seems to reject, not reject being an ordinary man, but he seems to kind of say, okay, I know I, I can I can handle it. My men can't handle it, but I can. Well, but he's told to do that, isn't he? I mean, isn't he? He's, he's told. given the option of doing that. He tells his men that Cersei told him to. And here's what I mean. In book 12, there's some indications of his deception. He tells his men, Cersei told me to listen to the voice of the sirens. Mm -hmm. But Cersei told him, don't do it. But if you want to, have your men lash you to the mast. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. She so gives him the option. Heidi, why why does the the story of the sirens, Odysseus's kind of response to the sirens, different for you than sleeping with Calypso and with Circe? Because you could you could make the case that that's him kind of like stepping into this sort of demigod role. Is the difference that sleeping with Calypso and Circe was under compulsion? Right. It's a good question. And I've been, this is what I've been thinking. David's been thinking about these, this thing he just mentioned. This is the thing I've been thinking about. So the Circe interlude happens before Calypso. And he willingly stays with Circe for one year. And I... Chronologically, not in the... No, yes. Not when the books happen. Yeah. Yes, exactly. In the you chronological unfolding all, yeah. of the story, Circe comes first, Calypso comes later. And so I'm wondering if this is in some ways the growth of Odysseus because he does stay with Circe for a year and it is his men who remind him it's time to go. And when he goes to Circe and says it's time to go, she's like, sure, go ahead. So at any point, and the implication is she would have let him go anytime and he stayed with her. So, I, but then with Calypso, it's very clear from the text that he never wants to be there. So, uh, and she keeps him as a pet, right? And so, what I'm wondering is if this is kind of the growth of Odysseus. And 
him listening to the sirens is, you know, there's no judgment on it in the text, but it, it seems to me to be inconsistent with mm. him and his constant choice to be an ordinary person over and over again. So I know I'm not expressing this very well, but I'm noticing it. And I'm, I'm definitely not a, a, you know, I, I approach these books every time I read them, I get something new about them. I have more questions than answers. And so this is one of my questions in reading it this time is why does he listen to the sirens when in every other case, he seems to choose kind of those earthly things, those ordinary man things. Hey, while we're on this subject, Heidi and David, I hope that when we get like near the end of this book, I might make the case <laughs> that Odysseus does not grow as a character. Um, yeah. I, I might, I don't, he's certainly not static. And I, and I don't mean... If, if I do argue, and I'm reluctant to argue because I don't know how many times I've been through the Odyssey, but I'm like you, Heidi, every time I go through, you know, when you're, especially when you're reading a book that's what, however, like 2,700 years old, um, it's difficult and it's complicated. And I, but in previous readings, I've thought, does he actually change or is the reason the book is so fulfilling is because he acts like himself the whole time. And he doesn't like really learn that much. He just either gets to act like himself and triumph over his enemies or he doesn't. So maybe when we get to the end of the later in the book, we can raise that. We can raise that question. It's a good question. I think a very big, big, very good question. And it's, when he gets back home, which we're going to get there, I can't wait for that. Lots of people think the second half of the Odyssey drags, but I love every minute of it. I agree. I agree. Um, because this is the man, this is the mission he's been on the whole time. This is where he's headed. And now he's been born again, brought out of the realm of the dead. He goes through these great sufferings so that the prophet, you know, and the prophecy is fulfilled. The prophecy from Polyphemus and from Tiresias and from Circe, all three of them tell him the same thing. You're going to get home and you're going to have lost all of your men and you're going to find your home beset with dangers and that's your homecoming is not going to be what you want it to be. And still, he's like, that's what I want to do anyway. I'm not staying with you goddesses. That's where I'm going there. I'm going home. What, so why do you think that the sirens then, I mean, we get, I don't know, less than 10 lines of the sirens. There's no description of them. He just talks about their melodious singing. Why do you think they are, I mean, that, them and the Cyclops are like the two things that are kind of like part of, you know, mm-hmm. everybody knows that in the Odyssey, there's the Cyclops and the sirens, right? Of all the sort of characters, even if you've never really read it, you know about that probably if you're familiar yes. at all. Why, why did the sirens become such a staple of culture at large? Given we get 10 lines, there's no description. Not no, Literally no one dies from the sirens. The one thing they run into that no one dies. David, I think it's for the reason that you alluded to earlier. It's, that story is so easily allegorized into um, kind of like a, a virtue quest. You know, where for me, 
the Scylla and Charybdis story, which is also pretty famous, but probably not as well known as the Sirens, it's a little bit harder to allegorize. Maybe it's a way you can, you can allegorize Scylla and Charybdis as a way of saying, um, choose the middle path. Wisdom is choosing the middle path between two great harms or something like that. But the sirens, the sirens are something that you can so easily apply to kind of everyday life that like, oh, there's this thing that I want that I know is so bad for me. And I just want to be able to hear it without actually being tempted by it. That's my hunch about why the sirens are so commonly known. Do you have another idea, Heidi? No, I think that that's exactly it. And I also think it just has this, um, uh, it is just such a metaphor for the, for the human pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. Right? This, and, and, Odys- and Odysseus is constantly tempted by false homecomings. That's, that is the theme of the Odyssey, that there's False homecomings, don't pick that. Don't choose that. Odysseus is a hero because he made it home. And then he fought even worse battles once he got there. Mm. And the sirens are the sirens are the embodiment of that. They're they're like the perfect metaphor. The the beautiful women luring a man to his doom. That is the, you know, that's that's the metaphor of temptation um, from time immemorial. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I was thinking though that I was or I was noticing I guess that unless Cersei mentions it or whatever he never says that they're beautiful women. Oh, that's Oh, true. did he not? Is that true? That's what I, I was trying to I was thinking that's the one of the I mean he says their song was melodious I long to listen for more. He doesn't say that he sees them their honeyed song poured from their mouths music brings them joy. And I don't know, maybe Cersei said they're beautiful women. That's she, the sirens who sit in their meadow will seduce him with pierces. She would. Um, she, no, that's really interesting. Now, I Jason, mean, I didn't I, say she would. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, now, the sirens are also in, are they in Jason of the Argonauts? And they're in the Aeneid. Yeah, I mean, so, and... and Oh, brother, we're out there. <laughs> of course. Well, and they're perfect. I actually, we love that movie at our house. Oh, it's, yeah, it's a great movie. A lot of how my kids know the Odyssey is children's versions. And hey, have you guys <laughs> seen that um, Robert Redford movie, The Natural? About he plays of this. Yeah. So, have you ever thought about The Natural as um, the story of the Odyssey? Oh, he, my story. Not really. It's it's a little it's not as direct as Oh Brother Where Art Thou but yeah, oh yeah I think it's the story of the Odyssey. There's this wonderful scene in which um, the owner of the team is trying to guess how and he I think is the Cyclops character is trying to guess how much change Robert Redford has in his pockets and he looks at Robert Redford and he covers one eye and he kind of leans toward the camera and this one eye is bulging out. And he's trying to kind of like foresee how much Robert Redford has in his pockets. And yeah. And there are these, there are these women. um, So there's, there's at the beginning, Glenn Close is Robert Redford's girlfriend and she stays at home and he goes out and launches his baseball career. And he's um, 
attacked by a woman who's terrible for him. Is this Calypso? Maybe. Uh, he's kind of seduced by this other woman, uh, famous 1980s blonde actress. I can't remember her name right now. Is she maybe Circe? And then he finally returns home to Glenn Close. It's it's a really good movie also. My, my family like adored watching that movie. My sister and I still kind of quote lines back and forth to each other. And I think it's telling of the Odyssey. Hmm. Much better than the book, by the way. One of the rare occasions, in my opinion. Oh, really? I didn't even know it was a book. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Very pretty famous book. Hey, I, I know we're probably like getting ready to go fairly soon. I have a question. My question is, what is the big deal with the cattle of Helios? So um, the opening lines of the whole book mention the sun god's cattle. Mm-hmm. And I think, so let me just read those lines. Uh, this is beginning in book uh, in seven of the opening book, book one. He, Odysseus, failed to keep them safe, poor fools. They ate the sun god's cattle and the god kept them from home, et cetera, et cetera. And I just think, man, of all the different things that go wrong in the Odyssey, why does this one get banner headlines in the opening paragraph of the opening book? Do you guys have a notion of that? Am I missing something? That is the, the, the failure that he participates in. That's not something that happened to him. He's the subject, not the object here. Meaning he acquiesced to um, the killing of the cattle? Meaning that he... Um, that, that the other sufferings that Odysseus went through, if you take his word for it within the story, <laughs> actually were something that happened to him. Right? O- Calypso takes him... To, how is that? How, is, how would you say this is different? And in this case... He chose to land on... Oh, he let them go ahead and land on the island, and then he went to sleep. Yes. So he did it. And he was warned before Inability to control his men. Yes. So, for example, with Polyphemus, he's an active participant in that, but he wasn't warned about that. It was... That's something, in many ways, that happened to him. Right? Like Polyphemus knew that Odysseus was coming, but Odysseus didn't have any kind of prophecy that he was going to land there. Um, but in this case, with, with the sun god's cattle, like he had the opportunity to steer by the island and he didn't. He landed there. He could have, he told the men, he did tell them, and but he he's responsible for what happened there in a way that he isn't with his other sufferings, if again you take his word for it. Like Scylla and Charybdis also. He, yes. Yeah. Although that's the thing that Virgil and Dante blame him for, right? But, but that's not what the story blames him for. If yeah. you're talking about the, the terms of the story itself, it's the eating of the sun god's cattle that fulfills the prophecy of Polyphemus and Tiresias. I, I hate to keep harping on this, but I really do think I see the failure here is a failure of ability, not a failure of 
character, if that makes sense. I mean, when you're reading the story of the men, you know, like wanting to eat the sun god's cattle, Odysseus is off and away and he's just kind of exhausted and he lets down his guard for a moment and the men do what they're going to do, which he's warned them about. It's sort of like his failure is not that he was really lazy. I mean, he's totally, completely exhausted beyond like human capacity. And I agree. Hungry. He's starving. That's right. That's the other thing that Homer highlights is how hungry he is. And it's it's funny because Homer will like drive home with great dexterity the point of his hunger and his thirst and his exhaustion. And then when he slips up a little bit, Homer kind of pounces on him. Mm -hmm. And it's I, I think culturally speaking, today I think we have. Um, we have plenty of faults. I think one thing we have great <laughs> empathy, great empathy. And I, I think it's hard to sympathize with Homer here for punishing or for the gods for punishing Odysseus, because we can empathize so much with just the, the raw exhaustion that he and his men are enduring and it, it feels to me like it's a little bit, it's a little unjust to let them have it given their their state. You're saying this done, that the gods are unjust? Can <laughs> you believe that I would make that argument? <laughs> you know, it's funny. Okay, so this relates to something that I guess this will be my final thought because I was thinking about, I mentioned earlier Clytemnestra. Maybe she's the sort of biggest villain in the whole the whole story. And I was thinking about all the different, um, I don't want to say villain, all the different obstacles Odysseus and his men, or at least Odysseus face. You have Calypso and Circe, you have some of the gods themselves, Scylla and Charybdis and the, the uh, Cyclops and the Sirens. And in some ways, his men's lack of fortitude, um, his own question, you know, his own uh, need to, have fortitude. Um, there's all these different things, uh, all ultimately leading up to, um, well, I guess you see it, the ocean itself as kind of stirred up by the gods and then ultimately leading up to the, uh, suitors. And I was thinking about how are any of those real villains, like really like inherently sort of like their purpose in the story. Yes. Is to like be an obstacle for, for him right but even the cyclops is he like evil is are the sirens evil no their nature is to do something that is dangerous to people and thus people should avoid them and so i was thinking about how do you you've talked a lot about the concept of like false homecomings and um you know even like calypso and circe are not evil you know right um Mm -hmm. And so then the suitors are the next thing that maybe like, maybe they're evil, but also they're, you know, <laughs> they might just be being, uh, you know, uh, what's, what's the word? Um, just taking advantage of the situation. <laughs> right. Maybe right. they're not, maybe evil is the wrong thing. They're certainly an obstacle. They're certainly maybe like the bad guy, but in, in, in uh, Clytemnestra, we get like, that's, that's real villainy. And, you mm-hmm. know, he learns about her story and what she did 
you know, to Agamemnon in the underworld. And for Odysseus, that has to be something that's sort of like hovering over his his thoughts, right? Like, what does he need to look out for when he's getting home? He's even warned of that. Um, and his, you know, he has this sense of faith in in Penelope that she's going to be faithful to him. Um, but I was I was just thinking about how of all the things they run up against, none of them you could really say are evil. But right. Clytemnestra is is that's true Shakespearean villainy there. <laughs> and and that that of false homecoming is comes in book 11 I think is really important because it's right before you know he finds out if he's going to you know right before he finds out if he's going to get help and he's going to head home and we're going to ultimately get the sort of you know the the story of what happens when he makes it home. And you know if that had happened in book 7 or book 8 it still would be meaningful but I I wonder if it'd be less meaningful or less sort of cast less of a pall on on his find the final stages of his journey. Um, because for us, it, it, it sort of is hovering over the story. Even if we know because of the Telemachy that Penelope is faithful to him. Um, the story is not the same without that bit. You almost, to me, you could almost substitute any magical creature, any storm. It could have been anything else. In some ways they could be substituted for the Cyclops or, you know, some other beautiful demigod instead of demigoddess instead of Calypso or whatever. But that's the one story I think that has to be there. That, that is like essential to the nature of the story. Like is uniquely, distinctly necessary to be, to be there. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. David, it, it makes total sense. And I completely agree. But wouldn't that make the suitors in some ways, they're just as evil as Clytemnestra. And the only difference between them is Clytemnestra was successful and they haven't yet been successful. Yeah, but I think that, you yeah, know... They're home wreckers. They're all home wreckers. Yeah, but that's... Di- like, okay, so, I mean, we'll talk about degree of virtues. We can talk about... Maybe we should talk about the degree of evil as well. <laughs> because, right. you know, is it worse to to go in there and take advantage of a situation when you don't actually think Odysseus is going to come home? Like, there's no way they thought he was coming home, right? So they're taking advantage of the situation. I mean, I'm not saying that they're not villainous in some degree, but is that actually as bad or or worse than Clytemnestra knowing he's coming home and then uh, being and then treacherously destroying her own home and her husband. I, I guess that's the distinction I would make. I, I would argue that the suitors claim to think that he's not coming home, hmm. but okay. why do they worry so much that he might be? And they, I mean, you yeah, know, they're, they're worried about it. So, but I, I think like in the Greek view, you could, you're, the argument could be um, Clytemnestra is worse. Let me, let me make sure I say this the right way. The intention of both Clytemnestra and the suitors is the same. They both have intentions of basically usurping, let's make it like simple, usurping a home or usurping their place within a home. Let's say that. Mm-hmm. And I think the Greeks would say, yeah, actually, Clytemnestra was worse because she was successful. The suitors were a little bit less bad just because they weren't successful. Whereas I think... Or they failed because they weren't bad enough. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you could <laughs> say that. Maybe you could say that. And I think that would be true. But your your bigger point about like these other things, like the Scyllian Charybdis and um, the Cyclops sort of acting within their nature. And so they're... 
against the hero and they're bad in that way. But in some ways, they're not bad like Clytemnestra and the suitors because the Cyclops is acting in accord with its nature. Its nature is like debauched in the Greek view, like, like almost like completely immoral. It has no community. It has no law. It lives completely through It's a barbarian. Itself. What's that? It's a bar- he's a barbarian. He's a barbarian. Um, but, uh, you know, he's kind of still just like acting with, in accord with his nature. Well, and like the sirens, that's the big one. That's when I started thinking about it because it talks about how their singing gave them pleasure or whatever. And they're just these cre- creatures, whatever they are, women, whatever. And, and, and they're just, all they do is sing. It doesn't, you don't even get the sense that, I mean, are they, are they, are they anything worse than like a tornado, for example? Right. Right. Like, I don't think so. Is there evil agency behind them? Like that their their mission is to destroy things. Like, are, right. or are they a hurricane? Are they a tornado? Are they something that that's just they are sort of the a force sort of, of nature. Uh, the conflict, yeah, the force of nature, sort of confluence of circumstances such that it leads to the demise of people who do not avoid them, um, and do not, you know, and and therefore who do not listen to people who can who can warn that warn about them. Um, I don't know. I, I just found that really interesting, and and, and the sirens coming the book after we learn about what happened to Clyde or what Clytemnestra did to Agamemnon. And Agamemnon, I think it's important that Agamemnon of all the Greek heroes to go home and get killed. It's Agamemnon be, uh, because of the, he's the high King, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, he is the one that goes home and is treacherously killed by his, um, by his wife. I, I just find the, the, the formal structural place of that in the story to be really, to be really fascinating. Uh-huh. Uh, Hi, did you have any final thoughts? Well, yeah, I think to go along with what the two of you are discussing, the epics are, you know, they're they're not fairy tales. There's they're not good embodied in a hero and evil embodied in a villain. Um that even these epic stories and and I've said this before and this is my favorite thing about the epics is that they have this grand scale to them, but when it comes to the decisions that each character makes and what motivates the characters, they're, I mean, profoundly human. Even something like Clytemnestra, who is the closest thing you get to the villain in the story. Um, and, and Helen might be a better example of this. Helen is completely ambiguous throughout both the Iliad and the Odyssey. Uh, we had a two-hour discussion on this in my class yesterday about about Helen. That that she is. Um, it's very easy to villainize Helen. To your all's point, it's easy to villainize her, but that's it's unfair to her because the epic presents her as a human person who's caught in these uh, implacable um, tensions that are being played out around her by the fates and the gods and the war and love and other people's choices. And that happens over and over again in the Odyssey and in the Iliad, that there's there's a grand scale, but it all comes down to some of these very human motivations, like Odysseus just wanting to get home. Loving his life after 20 years. Yes. Sorry. Yeah, no, you're right. And Tim's right about the empathy. Um, and, and that's something that in later Western stories, like in fairy tales, um, if you're trying to have empathy for the witch, you're reading the story wrong. She is supposed to be 
a villain again to be true to the world of the story uh that in Hansel and Gretel the witch is just bad and we're not supposed to have empathy for her and you're reading the story wrong if you do you're not supposed to feel bad for her at the end when she gets cooked in her own oven Yes, but that's that's exactly right. You're supposed to be grateful and don't make some movie about how she has a bad childhood and 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 um, maybe we should feel a little bit bad for her. That's just reading a fairy tale wrong. But that's not the case with the epics. There is this ambiguity and this humanity that that we are, I think, supposed to be drawn into and caught up in and supposed to make us have some question marks above our head as we're reading it. Mm. Yeah, have a little empathy for the most beautiful person in the world, all right? <laughs> she had a really can you, hard life. Can you imagine cause... being that? Um, <laughs> Heidi's, Heidi's point, I think, is a really good one. Like, it's tempting to, to give agency to Helen, and you have to kind of remember, wait, she's a war slave. It's hard to be critical of her for not having agency, because she is like this ambiguous character. Um. Yeah, but her her will was kind of not her own. She was swept up into this like horrible situation. Anyway, Heidi already said it better than that. <laughs> well, we should wrap up. Um, Tim, do you want to add anything? One literary nerd thing that I think most people know: the origin of the word barbarian comes from the Greeks. They would call outsiders barbarians, and the reason they did that is because when they heard non-Greek speaking, the language, the words sounded like bar, 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 bar. And so they, that's where the word barbarian comes from. Because <laughs> I, I'm going to go ahead and say that that sounds made up, but it's probably true. It is true. <laughs> it does sound I, made I up. I read it though. in a couple of different sources. Mm-hmm. That's true. And that's that's, I mean, I've probably read the same sources, so I... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Wikipedia for the word. We barbarian. read the same books, right? <laughs> Wikipedia. By the way, I think we need to get over. Wikipedia is a great resource. I know. I'm just kidding. I'm just. Kidding. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks to you both. Uh, like I said, we will be uh, covering four books for next week. Uh, so get your, you know, get your reading in. We will cover thirteen through sixteen, and then the last um, four weeks will all be, you know, two two books at a time as we move towards the end of this okay. epic amount of reading. Um, <laughs> don't forget about The Daily Poem, which is back now uh, for, your, for your school year. Uh, today is actually the one-year anniversary since we posted the trailer for The Daily Poem. And subsequently, me and I and whoever uh, else has helped from time to time have shared over 210 poems. So, um, you know, it's been a good year there. So thanks to everyone who's been listening and you can subscribe to that. And we've got a new batch of episodes of Romania coming and of course the place, the thing and the bonus podcasts on the Patreon feed. And we have a whole bunch of new stuff coming this fall, which I can't make announcements about yet, but which we are working on. Uh, and I think are going to be really exciting for everybody. So thanks to everybody who has been leaving reviews and rating the shows and subscribing and telling all your friends could not do it um, without all of your feedback and your support. So thanks to everyone for doing that. And don't forget about the Patreon bonus episode that we are going to record in like five minutes. And that's going to be about a Willa Cather story called Paul's Case. So if you want to come listen to us talk about a super depressing story, then you know, join us on Patreon. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's lovely also. I had never yeah, heard of it yeah. and I loved it. Yeah, it's, it's, um, I would say bizarre is a good word for it too. Yeah. 
Um, I can't so wait yeah. to talk to you guys about the story. All right. Well, then let's go do that. Okay, so okay. We'll, uh, we'll hang up on this call and we'll start a new one for that. So uh, as always, thanks to everyone for listening. For Heidi White, for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. Happy reading. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you.